Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Velt by Ray Bradbury. First published as The World the Children Made in the Saturday Evening Post, September 23rd, 1950. Uh, I think this has got to be collected in one of those famous famous books of his collection. The Illustrated Man. Illustrated Man, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, this is, I was thinking, is this the most famous Ray Bradbury short story or the second most famous, maybe behind? No. What do you think? Mars is Heaven is, I think, the one that is is that is out the most for Bradbury. Uh, there even read articles about the different versions of Mars is Heaven, mm. which is the third expedition in um, the Martian Chronicles. Mm. I was thinking a sound a sound of thunder. That gets reprinted an awful lot. Although, it sure does. Um, yeah, the butterfly effect. Yeah, uh, it's it's kind of interesting because most. Most SF writers, um, you know, in the general public's mind, I think don't have any kind of status in terms of, you know, famous short stories. People know novels a lot better, uh, I think, in general. But it's funny because Ray Bradbury has – I mean, he's he's got one famous novel, I guess, um, in the public's mind, Fahrenheit 451. Maybe what they study in school. Everybody gets sort of exposed to Ray Bradbury in school. And – the Velt is one of those that I was first shown in school, and I don't know if I found a sound a sound of thunder that way, um, but it, it it's right up there. It's way it up is. there, and yeah. uh, you know you can't you cannot underestimate sort of the power of this famous story. It's not famous because it was foisted upon you. It's famous because it was foisted upon you and it's good. <laughs> right? It was foisted upon you and and you came away from it saying, he's really got something here. He's really got something here. And you, you may not know what it is. I'm not sure I know what it is. I've got a whole lot of ideas. But he's very, uh, he's very poetic in his uh, storytelling and he and he has lots of ideas he's giving you, but he doesn't say, this is what I mean. <laughs> he says that outside of the story, certainly, but I'm not sure he's right, <laughs> at least not always. One of the things that he has said about himself is that he isn't really a science fiction writer. He's mm -hmm. a fantasy writer, uh, although there are clearly significant machines in the Velt. Um, uh, yeah, I think he may be right here as well. Um, let me uh, – as for what it means, I have to say that I read this when I was uh, young, uh, not because uh, it was foisted upon me in school. The Illustrated Man, I think, is 1953 or 54, and uh, at that time I was – you know, I probably read it when it was just in the local candy store mm -hmm. on a book spinner. So, you know, when I was maybe – nine or ten, I just got this book of Bradbury and I read it. And this story made an impression on me. And I have to say, the impression lasted. But as I read it over, I think it's about something else mm. than I thought it was about mm -hmm. all those years. So uh, I agree. That's I, okay. And that makes, uh, makes you know that it's a very rich story. 
that, you know, something that you feel like you know so well and you come back to it with a different maturity <laughs> and you <laughs> well, think of I it as a different way. Maybe I've devolved. So let's just make sure that everybody uh, understands that we're talking about the same story. Um, I know you've told me that you see some few but not utterly substantial changes between the world that children made and the Vilt. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you'll fill us in on those. Uh, but just so that we have the, the plot, uh, George and Lydia Hadley have, are nervous that their children, uh, Wendy and Peter, are spending too much time in the nursery. The nursery is 40 by 40 and 30 feet high. It has crystal walls all around it that is all four sides. And we come to learn that the kids can think what sort of environment they want. And the, uh, the, the nursery creates that environment for them uh, in such richness that odor of phonics has winds wafting through, wafting through with the smells of the environment. You can hear the roar of lions out there on the veldt uh, when they, the kids have created an, an Africa. We do get to see an alternative to that, which is from W.H. Hudson's Green Mansions, um, when the kids or somebody wants not to have Africa visible. But mostly what we're worried about is Africa, which is a dangerous domain. Uh, George and Lydia are worried that the children are spending too much time there. They try to get them to spend a little less time there. They want to refuse them access. And uh, the kids get very, very set against that. When it's locked anyway, they wail so pitilessly that Lydia says, oh, just let them have it for a few minutes, Peter, uh, George. Let them just have it for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we discover is they somehow the lions from this three-dimensional display seem to devour the parents. Mm. Okay, so this is the world the children made. That's the title of it. Um, it was just that, and they bring in a friend who's a psychologist to explore this a little. Mm-hmm. And he talks about child rearing. This is very much a post World War II story. You can tell all of the underlying uh, issues about should we spoil children? Mm-hmm. If, will we spoil them if we pamper them? Should we discipline them? This is it's it's the the popular psychology of the 1950s is already in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that sound about right to it you? It does. It does. Okay. I, that, what are the differences between this and uh, the later version that we're all very like, minor, familiar with? Very minor. Uh, he's he adds a few things um, here and like just just like minor words, two sentences that are you know a sentence here, a sentence there. So, in for example, um, this is on uh, page. Hmm. Uh, 62. It says, um, he stepped into Africa. How many times in the last year had he opened this door and found Wonderland, Alice, the Mocking Turtle, or Aladdin and his magic lamp? He adds the word Pegasus in there. <laughs> um, later on, uh, or earlier on on that same page, uh, same page in the f- first column, um, it says, the children thought lions, and there were lions. 
The children thought zebras, and there were zebras. Sun, sun, giraffes, giraffes, death, and death. And then the words, that last. Uh, death thoughts. So he adds in the words, that last. It's such small polishing that it's essentially the same story. He has mm. not made any major difference, major changes, other than the title, which I think is very important. Um, I'd only known it under the title of The Velt until I found it in uh, Saturday Evening Post and uh, found out that it was public domain. So I'm, I'm always worried about why Ray Bradbury or thinking about why Ray Bradbury changes titles. He does it a lot, like a lot more than other authors um, of the contemporary period. Uh, I'm not sure why. I I think part of it might have been marketing. You can sell it again under another title. (laughs) I I don't know if that's the case. But in this case, um, what's funny is the, the title makes quite a difference, I think. The Velt makes it about the Velt itself, whereas the world the children made is referring to the Velt, but also makes us think about the world that the parents made. And that made me reevaluate the whole story. Thinking about the scene, for example, when the parents first confront the children over what is going on in the playroom, the nursery, um, they deny that it's Africa. Now, the very first time I read it, I'm like, no, they're lying. Um, and Wendy runs down the hall, and when the, they go in there together, and they follow her in, um, it's no longer Africa. It's Rima the Jungle Girl, which is a different place. It's, I think it's supposed to be South America. It's a famous story. Um, and I thought, oh, she's changed it. But I think a really interesting way of reading this is that the Africa, the Velt, that is what the parents are so worried about, is their projection and not the children's. There are, there's evidence against this, but there's a hell of a lot of evidence for it, given how much the parents are worried about what the children are doing, and yet they're the ones who bought this house. They're the ones who made the children live this way. It's very interesting. And I think it's all of this revelation has come to me from thinking about that title. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, rereading it. The world the children made, we are told at the end. Well, we're not told. We, are, we take away, everyone seems to take away, that the, that the parents were killed by the lions. But it doesn't actually say that. The parents are missing, certainly. And we infer that the parents were killed by the children. And this seems to be straight out of every Ray Bradbury piece of psychology I've ever read about him. You know, (laughs) the small assassin. (laughs) He's worried that his newborn baby's trying to kill him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Here, the children, Peter and Wendy, uh, obviously the name coming from a famous... uh, uh, play and um, story. Um, they didn't name themselves. The parents did that. So this is about ima- this is about uh, imagination gone haywire or am- imagination taken too far. 
And that's what the parents are worried about throughout the story. But whose imagination is all of this? The children didn't make the world they're growing up in, exactly. I'd like to offer... No. Let me say, I think you're right, that um, it doesn't have to be the children's projection. It could be the parents' projection. The parents are afraid of things. And we notice, for example, that um, the the wallet, George's wallet, mm. is found. Uh, and it's been chewed on. And it's a bit bloody. Um, uh, one of the so we can ask you know who's the villain of this piece is, mm-hmm. is it the, is it is it the children who are the villains of this piece or is it the uh, the, the parents who are the villains of this mm-hmm. piece that's I think the, the the problem that you're posing us and there's evidence on both sides they named the children Peter and Wendy on the other hand Peter and Wendy are characters who don't want to ever grow up that mm-hmm. is Peter is committed to not growing up and although Wendy grows up, she yearns to be able to go back to Peter. Now, the relationship between Peter and Wendy in J.M. Barry's work is a sort of strange one in that Wendy is, is a mothering figure for Peter. Mm-hmm. And yet when Wendy thinks back about Peter, she, he's, he's a love interest for her. Mm-hmm. She, she, right? And if you take a look at the illustration from the Saturday Evening Post, mm-hmm. um, the children are there in the hot belt. Uh, they are wearing orange. The, the boy, Peter, is wearing uh, orange shorts. Uh, the girl is wearing an orange sk- skirt. They both are wearing orange leggings um, that come up on their ankles. The father is leaning in through the door. He's wearing an orange shirt as well. Everybody's in orange, but I notice that although she's lying on her stomach, looking up from a picnic at the father through the door, mm-hmm. Wendy is topless. Mm-hmm. And when Wendy and Peter come in from having gone out on their own to a party, uh, they appear and come to talk to their parents who are in the kitchen, hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a strange kind of psychology here that doesn't seem to have to do with exactly who the villain of the piece is, the parents or the children. The villain of the piece may have to do with the ambiguity of, of fantasizing. And with that in mind, Peter and Wendy, as allusions to J.M. Barry, seems to me very powerful. Mm-hmm. It may well be that if you can't tell the difference between your mother and your lover— Something is going to go wrong. And it is clear that Peter is the one in charge. Um, He is the one in charge. But I'd like to offer another alternative um, for who the the villain of the piece is. Actually, two. Okay. One of the alternatives, and I would say knowing Bradbury's work and having spoken with Bradbury, um, this is something that I imagine – grew into the story unconsciously, but that doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. The villain of the piece may be capitalism. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of talk about how much we paid for it, that the nursery costs half again as much as the rest of the house. How is it that um, they made it so cheap? Um, It's the wallet that gets chewed Mm -hmm. as a sort of uh, metonym for... um, for George, uh, everything here in a subtle way, nonetheless, everything here 
is put in terms of money. Mm-hmm. And it may well be that we have been pampered to death in a consumerist society. It's the corporations that are the villains here. And when George says to Lydia, let's take a vacation, let's turn off the house and go away for a while. Mm-hmm. What he's doing is getting off the grid. He's becoming a traitor to the capitalist system. And so the tools of capitalism, that is to say the house, turn against him. So another another candidate for who the villain of the piece may be, may be the machinery. Mm-hmm. The machinery itself. Listen to how it starts. It's, it starts very well. I mean, Bradbury is great at building a world. Yes. George, I wish you'd look at the nursery. What's wrong with it? I don't know. Well, then, I just want you to look at it. It's all or call a psychologist in and look at it. What would a psychologist want a nurse with a nursery? You know very well what he'd want. His wife paused in the middle of the kitchen and watched the stove busy humming to itself making supper for four. It's just that the nursery is different now than it was. All right, let's have a look. They walked down the hall of their soundproofed happy life home, which had cost them $30,000 installed, this house which clothed and fed and rocked them to sleep and played and sang and was good to them. This is a world without ever a word being said, which we can tell is so different from our own, mm-hmm. but connected to our own. This is what Heinlein said good science fiction writing would do. Mm-hmm. He used the example, he, the door dilated, dilated open, exactly, mm-hmm. and he walked through. This is the same thing, but what Heinlein is doing when he does that is giving us a technologically different world. Bradbury seems to be giving us a technologically different world, but he wallows in what critics call the pathetic fallacy. Mm. The house has feelings. The house is humming to itself. Later on, the kitchen hums to itself. When Lydia sit down, sits down, the chair immediately starts rocking, trying to, oh, sorry, when, when, when George and Lydia are disturbed about what's going on with the children, the bed tries to rock them to sleep. The house has its own desires, and those desires include infantilizing the adults. So an alternative, who is the villain of the piece, may simply be the technology. As Emerson said, things are in the saddle and ride mankind. The technology that has been created to serve our wishes, in fact, tells us what our wishes are to be. Mm-hmm. When you said it may be that the parents created Africa, not the children. Mm-hmm. That may well be, but they didn't want to create Africa. That's right. But the machinery wanted them, of all of their different wishes, to be living in Africa, in part, so that it could keep them deliciously scared and control them. And when they got out of hand, it could work through the more impressionable mind of Peter, who never wants to grow up in order to get rid of them. The villain of the piece may be as it was in the the Martian Chronicles. The technology has gotten so far ahead of us that we don't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And so 
when I read this as a child, I was sure that the parents had, quote, spoiled the children. Mm -hmm. The children were snotty and we would today call them entitled. Mm -hmm. They created a world that they got a lovely frisson from. And they were glad to turn that against their parents when their parents tried to keep them from enjoying their fantasies. Mm -hmm. But now reading it again half a century later, what I see is not only the possibility that George and Lydia created that, but that the whole world of adults that made and sold things, mm -hmm. that tried to encase us all in adult comforts, we have actually created a world in which the only way to have anything that appears to be natural is to fake it with technology and fake nature is even more violent than real nature. <laughs> this is a story in which the villain of the piece, I think, can easily be seen not as the children. They were just raised in this world. It can be seen that the villain of this piece is the adult commitment to not having to do a thing. Mm-hmm. I want to read a section that uh, it's just so poignant with, the, with what he points to and what he doesn't point to. It's it's fun stuff. So this is, again, on page uh, 53, I think. Or 62, I'm sorry. It's kind of hard to read there. Um, that's just it. I feel I don't belong here. The house is wife and mother now and nursemaid. Can I compete with an African veldt? Can I give a bath and scrub to the children as efficiently or as quickly as an automatic scrub bath can? I cannot. And it isn't just me. It's you. You've been awfully nervous lately. I suppose I have been smoking too much. You look as if you do... Uh, sorry. You look as if you didn't know what to do with yourself in this house. Either you... Either you smoke a little more every morning and drink a little more every afternoon and eat a little more sedative every night. You're beginning to feel unnecessary too. So they've created this world, the house. They've created this economy. They create, create this house. They've named their children after a fantasy. They've built into their house a fantasy world. It's built right in. And now they're rejecting it. And the children are saying, what are you talking about? We love the playroom. Right. The parents I are agree. the ones with the problem here. I'm going to continue. This is really good stuff. You're beginning to feel unnecessary too. Am I? He paused and tried feeling it into himself to see what was really there. Oh, George, she said. Uh, sorry. Oh, George, she looked beyond him at the nursery door. Those lions can't get out of there, can they? She's the child now. She's Wendy. He looked at her. He looked at the door and saw it tremble, as if something had jumped against it from the other side. Of course not, he said. Now he's imagining the house is out to get them. And then get this. There's a paragraph right at a paragraph right. Paragraph break. At dinner, they ate alone, for Wendy and Peter were at a special plastic carnival across town and had televised home to say they'd be late. Go ahead, sorry, to, to go ahead and go ahead eating. 
So George Hadley, bemused, sat watching the dining room table produce warm dishes of food from its mechanical interior. We forgot the ketchup, he said. Sorry, said a small voice within the table, and the ketchup appeared. <laughs> so when he yeah. says we forgot the ketchup, did they forget to program it? And what does ketchup look like? It looks like blood, right? So <laughs> this is fascinating because the parents, both uh, George and what's what's the wife's name? Lydia. Lydia. George and Lydia are the ones who worry. Who are worried? They're actually like a, a mirror image to Peter and Wendy. Um, like you say, they're hand in hand. They're both. Uh, they have the. I don't know what their ages are in the story, but Peter and Wendy's ages are identical. It doesn't say that, but it implies it very heavily. It says, um, "This fantasy, which was growing a bit too real for ten-year-old children, so they're twins." And mm-hmm. if you look at the picture, they look like twins in the sense mm-hmm. that they're the same age. Um, this is the perfect period, the time. Uh, for that worry about the loss of the fantasy life, the play life. After a certain age, you just can't play the way you did when you were younger. Um, The parents are saying, well, we have adult responsibilities now. We have to think about the future. We have to be responsible and be parents. And now the house says, no, you don't. And the (laughs) children are like, what's your problem, mom and dad? Let's go on vacation. Well, the kids are out. They're out at the plastic carnival across town. Parents are the ones who are staying at home, right? It's like their situations are reversed. I think they are reversed. That's that's where the horror comes from. Is that when the children who don't have uh, the uh, the maturity and commitment to society as a whole Mm -hmm. are in charge, we see the real danger in the fantasy that the fantasy life that the parents have enabled in their children. So they are, in fact, the children of these parents. I would like to point out that this is not, I'm going to say the parents chose this. They did, but they chose something that society had made available. Mm-hmm. George is not an inventor. No. He didn't make this. That's right. right? He, he bought it, and someone Someone sold it at a terrifically low price. Mm-hmm. The society that is the capitalist system is conspiring to make sure that people can do this kind of stuff. But I'd like to add that this is still very much located in the post-World War II period. Just before the passage that you read, when George says we, could ha- we should go on a vacation, um, right? He, the, he says to Lydia – You've been working too hard. You need a rest. I don't know. I don't know, she said, blowing her nose and sitting down in a chair that immediately began to in, uh, to rock and comfort her. <laughs> Maybe I don't have enough to do. That's what having too much, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe I don't have enough. Right? That's her problem. Maybe I have time to think too much. Why don't we shut the whole house off for a few days and take a vacation? George says, You mean you want to fry my eggs for me? (laughs) Yes, she nodded. And darn my socks? Yes, a frantic, watery-eyed nodding. And sweep the house? Yes, yes, oh yes. They want to play house. (laughs) But I thought that's why we bought this house, so we wouldn't have to 
do anything. Mm. Notice the switch. Mm-hmm. She says, he says, you're going to do this work. Mm-hmm. You're going to do that work. You're going to do the other work. But then he says, I thought we wouldn't have to do anything. This is from the depths of a male patriar- of the patriarchal society of the 1950s. The presumption is not simply that he gets to say what needs to be done and she does the work. She feels better. It's a vacation for her to be able to work for him. And when Peter and Wendy come back from the plastic carnival and the father says, you know, it's Africa in there, Peter says, Wendy will go check it out. Wendy, go. So mm-hmm. little Peter and Wendy, who hold hands, you know, and they're both are topless, little Peter and Wendy are reproducing the same patriarchy that their parents have taught them. Mm-hmm. This is a patriarchy embedded in capitalism. The Velt <laughs> only exposes what's wrong because we've taken all of modern America and transported it to some place that is so radically different. In the Velt, as it's described by Bradbury, there is not a piece of human artifice. Mm-hmm. There's a watering hole, there are plants, there are animals, there are vultures circling overhead. Not a piece of human artifice unless it's injected by the humans who own the house. Mm-hmm. Lydia's scarf and George's wallet. So I think this is a it's a scary story, at least it was for me as a kid. But ultimately, I think it it's become so famous because even if we don't recognize what's going on in a conscious way, it is a deep and searching critique of something that once was and to some extent still is powerful in our culture. Mm-hmm. I've got a little clip that actually... I want to read this. This is just what you were saying. The Hadleys, and it's so interesting, the switch here. The Hadleys turned to Wendy and Peter. Uh, turned, turned. Wendy and Peter were coming in the front door, cheeks like peppermint candy, eyes like bright blue agate marbles, a smell of ozone on their jump from their trip in the helicopter. I guess uh, Peter wasn't piloting that. It's probably automated, right? Now, I don't go to school or down the street by helicopter, but this is the material wealth that we're seeing, right? And then the parents, this is so good. You're just in time for supper, said both parents. I like that they say (laughs) it at the same time. And then the children say, we're full of strawberry ice cream and hot dogs, said the children, holding hands, but we'll sit and watch. Yes, come to, uh, come tell us about the nursery, said George Hadley. Notice it's the parents... (laughs) are saying things at the same time together in unison the children are saying things that the together in unison and it's it's like their situations are reversed come tell us about your day <laughs> yeah so strange he and they and they don't and they don't they don't i think what's going on here is that that george realizes that the children are preventing him and lydia from understanding because he knows there is always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts 
by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.